And the passage that was just read for us this morning, in all honesty, is really that. It is a passage that is reminding us, just as Paul was reminding those in Corinth, that the resurrection is the center and the basis and the groundwork for all that we are as a people and as believers. He starts the chapter we find ourselves in, which was 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And he tells us there at the very beginning that it is the gospel that he preached that made them a people, that made them a church. It is the gospel that he proclaimed that allowed them to be in existence. And the gospel that he preached that time in Corinth and to, his people, to those people is a gospel that proclaimed that Christ died for our sins according to the, all that was foretold in the Old Testament. And that he was buried and that on the third day he rose again. And that is according to the scriptures. That was their foundation, according to Paul, for all of the church, the New Testament church. Their foundation was this good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came, died, was buried, and rose again. And that is our foundation today. This was, is, and always will be the center and the bedrock of the Christian faith. And we sense, though, in that being true, Though it is true and always will be and always was true that there's doubt amongst the Corinthian people. That in Corinth there was doubt. And the great tension in this passage and in this book really is that the people of Corinth are asking a question. A question that I think many of us have, will ask and will continue to wrestle with in a lot of ways. Can resurrection be true? Is resurrection actually a reality for us? It's easy to kind of think of it theoretically. It's a nice idea, right? Metaphorically even. We come to this again and again. Many of us find ourselves asking this question and wondering, how could the dead actually be raised? That can't be like literally true, right? It's maybe literally true in the way that we younger folk like to use that statement. Uh, you know, we might be okay. That I literally died. We say things like that. We, well, you're still breathing, so you didn't literally die. And so we take that literal sense of the resurrection. We're like, yeah, I can agree with it in that. It's a good sentiment. It makes me feel good about myself. It makes me excited. Yeah, the resurrection's real. But what Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. Corinthians, you must understand the resurrection had to happen. For many of us, I think even if we can cognitively ascend to that being a reality or some truth in our mind by which we understand the scriptures, we understand the world around us, that we can kind of write on a paper, pass a lie detector test, and say, yeah, 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 the resurrection is real. The reality of it is, is day to day, in and out of our lives, it doesn't ascend past a metaphorical or figurative idea. The reality of it is, is it's difficult to walk day in and day out holding that truth as pure and real and grounding and necessary. It's actually one that oftentimes if you are a believer and find yourself in conversations about faith, it is probably a topic or an idea, though it be the ground we stand on, it be a topic that you oftentimes try to sort of avoid. 
please don't ask me. Maybe you guys don't have these conversations. You're not pastors on a plane when somebody says, oh, what do you do? And you say, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, I got some questions for you. First, they apologize for any curse words they just said. And then they ask you about the random question that they've always wondered. And oftentimes, this is the thing. It's like you're going, oh, you're going to ask about something about heaven, hell, resurrection, the body. Here we go. We avoid it. And it doesn't, if we're honest, if I'm honest with you, standing in front of you on Easter Sunday, lead pastor of a church, if I'm honest with you, oftentimes the reality of a bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that is far off in my mind. I talk about resurrection, but I don't really wrestle and grasp with what it is. And Paul is saying it cannot be a purely spiritual or metaphysical idea but the reality of resurrection is the minimum, like, that is the baseline for them. Like, you can never abandon this. And so he goes on to make it plain for him. He goes through 1 Corinthians 15. And what he's going to say, he's going to say, if the dead are not resurrected, if you're going to challenge and say the, re- the, the dead cannot be bodily and actually, in reality, resurrected, then all that we have preached to you and that you have continued to give your life to is meaningless. There's no point in it. Because if Jesus Christ is not resurrected from the grave, then the Christian faith that we proclaim is meaningless. Now, I want to say something here, and I don't know where everyone is at on this idea. I was raised and even sort of just naturally assumed when you would hear statements like that, that then like, I had a professor that would always joke And he would say, if the resurrection of Jesus isn't real, then line up the cocaine. And there's some element of truth to that. Paul is going to say, if the resurrection of Jesus isn't real, then like enjoy yourself. Because tomorrow we die. Party it up. Have fun. Seek pleasure. But I do want to say that there are reasons, and and you've maybe heard these similar arguments, like why would you care for someone if you don't believe in Jesus? Why would you like, love someone, sacrifice yourself? There are reasons. There are good arguments. And if you expose yourself to people outside of this Christian bubble that is oftentimes the context we live in, you will encounter people that are quality human beings, that love their neighbor, that are great husbands and wives, fathers, mothers, friends, siblings, whatever, you, whatever space they may find themselves in. And it is dismissive and arrogant of believers to assume that just because they don't believe in a real resurrection of Jesus Christ that they, like, they can't possibly have some grounds to be a good person. There are conceivable ideas of why one would care about humanity and want to see the betterment of the society around them. But here's the reality, and I say this to help us understand that, that those ideas are oftentimes things that we adopt into Christianity. We decide that we think that we want to talk about abundant life and eternal life and resurrection life because we want society to be good. We rightfully so pursue social justice and we fight against inequity in life and in culture around us. We long to see the marginalized placed into homes. We long to see people, the the widows, the orphans, to be loved and cared for. And sometimes we leave it there as if that's just a good thing to better humanity and society around us. But those are not Christian ideas in and of themselves if that is where we stop. 
To be purely Christian is to stand firm in the saving grace and hope of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. And that is what Paul is getting at. Is he's saying you cannot just do these things and like dismiss the resurrection. You cannot call that the gospel. That is not good news in and of itself. Sure, it is good to help those around you, but that does not get us out of the human predicament. That does not save us from ourselves. And as Paul has made clear in his letter to the Corinthians, they need saving from themselves. If you are honest with yourself, you know good and well that you need saving from yourself many times. We cannot just do that on our own. That takes Jesus entering into our story, giving us hope in life and beyond life giving us hope that something can be different because all of Scripture has been this big, long story of God's people attempting to do the thing that God set in place for them to do. Go all the way back to Genesis. God had set His creation into the earth. He gives them space to rule and to reign and to make something of the world with them, to create something alongside of Him, co-heirs, co-creators. And the story of Scripture is how the people of God messed that up again and again. And he comes and he sets it right. He's gracious and he's good to return to the promises. And they come and they mess it up again. And what we actually see in the cross is the pinnacle of human creation, the attempt for humanity to create something, and we see that it has gone completely awry. With their ability and the task to set them apart, to see something in more than life, to see something good in life, and to imagine that there can be something beyond that. What humanity, when left to its own vices, gives us is the cross. And what God is saying, what Paul is saying through, or what God is saying through Paul to the Corinthians, is that it's there that Jesus will take that on and he will promise to recreate something else. And so we can partner alongside of that. We can be uh, connected to that. You don't have to dismiss non-Christian non-profits. That's not what I'm saying up here, okay? By all means, help those that have already figured a lot of this out. But understand that that in and of itself is not the gospel. Fixing education in Birmingham is not the gospel. But it is a very, very important and necessary part that is connected to it in our belief. Okay? But if you dismiss the resurrection, if you dismiss the hope that we have in Jesus, then you're dismissing Christianity itself. The very thing that we claim to believe, the very God that we claim to serve and be created by is demolished. Not good in society, completely and wholly, right? But Christianity without the resurrection of Jesus means nothing. And so he continues in 1 Corinthians 15. And in the passage we just read, he's going to make a reference to something that was the first fruits. And if you're uh, familiar with the Bible at all, you immediately have a biblical overtone Lights going off in your head. First fruits. Yes, yes, yes. Every good student knows that that is Leviticus 23. You guys are very familiar with it. Leviticus is the Bible that, or the book of the Bible you read regularly uh, for one day in January until your Bible reading plan falls off its wheels, right? Like that's usually, it's Leviticus that it takes a nosedive because you're kind of just laboring through. So first fruits is in Leviticus. And Paul is obviously wanting to make a reference to this. This is the beautiful thing about Scripture. I was just in a conversation with this about someone uh, last week. 
And like the more I do this, and they were talking, and like the more they study the Bible and they see it, what is so beautiful is how much of the Bible is constantly connecting and speaking to each other. I'm convinced you can read Genesis 1 through 3 over and over again, get a really good commentary just on those three chapters, and it will apply to every single verse in the entire Bible. That's an overstatement probably, but I would be willing to bet on that and then go the other way, okay? There, these overtones are everywhere. But beyond that, I think what Paul is trying to say is not just, uh, he's not calling to mind just the festival and the procession and the feast that they would have celebrated with the first fruits. His main point in referencing the first fruits and that Christ is our first fruit is the metaphor that is drawn from that festival, which is that Christ is serving as our guarantee, a down payment, if you will, that resurrection and new life will happen. And this is where he then goes in to read, as we read, that there was, there was the old Adam. And in the old Adam that we find ourselves in humanity, as the dust people that we are, we experience and know death well. In Adam there is death. In that old way of being there is death. But in Christ there is life. For all that would choose to participate and be in Christ. And what he's saying in this moment and what he's offering to the people of Corinthians and to us here today is to hear those words and to know that it is in Christ that we too receive that life. And he's acknowledging and he's wrestling with a tension that we know to be rather true and that is that we proclaim today and oftentimes we're not singing it this Sunday but regularly if you've been around Mosaic for the last few years we sing a song that talks about how Christ laid death in his grave. That death has been defeated. Death is vanquished. The great enemy is no more. And yet we know all too well that death is real. In the last two years, currently in Eastern Europe, open up the news, there's a rise in violence and murders and nobody can figure out why. We know death has not been completely defeated, right? We're left wrestling with the Corinthians. This is why it's easy to be honest about this. Is we go like, how can resurrection be real? How can death be defeated when I am struggling with the pains and the effects of death all around me? We're acquainted with it. Some of you in this room may be acquainted with it very well in this very season you find yourself in. Death of one sort or another. A knowing that life is not going the way that God intended it to. The lack of life, the lack of presence of something you long for and desire in and around your life. And you feel that and you carry it with you. Maybe some of you carry it heavily and deeply because of a wound and a death that you experienced in childhood. And it shaped and it marred you in a different kind of way. We know that death is not completely defeated yet. And that's Paul's point is that if Christ has been resurrected, then we know that we too, those that have been laid to sleep in Christ, must be also resurrected. Because if Christ has been resurrected, then death has been defeated. Then we know that it has to happen. And he's doing this thing where he's going back and forth and he's saying, and if you can't believe that, then you can't believe that Christ was resurrected and you have no faith. But if you can believe that Christ was resurrected and you have faith in God, then you have to believe that you too will be resurrected. That there is life. There's something he's pointing to about the end of all things. 
big fancy theological word for it is the eschaton. He's pointing to the end of it all. He's inviting them to see that this is God's ultimate plan and that in the end it will work out. In the end it will be the way God intended it to be because God is victorious and he will have his way. And Christ is the promise that that is to be true. He goes on to say that Christ in that moment, once death has been defeated and the bodies have been raised and God has been given back all that he intended, that Christ then will do this beautiful thing where he will submit back to God the Father who had placed him in charge of giving him all authority to rule and to reign. And you see this beautiful submission of love and care to one another in the, in the Godhead. But his acknowledgement is that death has not been defeated yet. But we are promised that it will be. We are promised that we know that it is coming. To deny that, Christ, that Christ's resurrection, to deny Christ's resurrection is tantamount to a denial of the Christian existence altogether. And yet we regularly do so. What we accept is no longer the Christian faith. faith. Nothing else in the Christian faith and those who reject the actuality of the resurrection of Christ matters. If we reject resurrection, we must be willing to face the consequences of such resurrection. For we are bearing false witness against the very God that we claim to believe in. So how do we know? How do we know, how do we stand alongside of Paul? N.T. Wright in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, that he wrote in the early 2000s, lays out a wonderful argument, some of them that you're familiar with, some of it from scripture, and he makes all these other things. But he kind of ends in this one point where he says, the reality of it is, is regardless of what you kind of believe and how you come to grips with it, what you have to acknowledge is that on that third day, 2,000 years ago roughly, Something happened. Something shifted. Something changed. Whatever you want to call it. We as Christians believe this. Tom Holland, a historian in England, agnostic, non-believer, wrote a book about this big that's on the cross and crucifixion. And he talks about how ugly and shameful the cross is. He talks about how it was something that like, society despised. Good Roman Greek people, they wouldn't, even, like, they wouldn't even mention the name of the cross. So how? He asked this question as a non-believer. How does an instrument of torture become a symbol that we look upon with beauty and with awe? How? How is that possible? Something had to happen. And he acknowledges that. On our website, we have this on our about page, and I think it said well, so I'll just read it. Jesus was a man who claimed to be God, a rebel who dies a rebel's death. And in Holland's book, he makes this point clear. He says that in this point in time, lots of people claim to be God, Lots of people claim to be king. Lots of people claim that they would overthrow governments. All of them died a rebel's death, and all of their movements ended but one. Like thousands before him, 
He was born in an insignificant place to an insignificant people and was executed because of the outrageous claims that he made about himself. The crowds that followed in the beginning were the same as those who would later call for his crucifixion at the end. All but a few women of his, all but a few women of his closest followers and friends abandoned him at the foot of the cross that would have brought shame and demise upon them. And 2000 years later, he remains just as divisive. And yet History, as we know it, is counted by his birth. How does this happen? How does an insignificant and mentally unstable carpenter overshadow perhaps the greatest empire in the history of the world that we call Rome? How does he go from being killed as a heretic to becoming the single greatest name in all of the world? In a word... But this movement in this moment does not happen immediately. If you place yourself as the disciples, this is their Easter morning. Let's go back with them. You're there in that moment. The reality of it is, as we read in Luke, it's an even darker picture if you read it in Mark's retelling and account. Matthew and John are going to give us similar things. It doesn't change in a moment. It's slow. Bit by bit. Though it is about resurrection, we understand that resurrection is sort of invisible for the people of God at that moment. They find themselves asking lots of questions and wondering when, how, what's going on. I love the words of Peter in the end of Luke. Wondering how could this be? I think we find ourselves wondering the same question. Okay, it's true, but what now? How could this be? As Paul said, we know it to be true because of the end. And yet the end sometimes doesn't feel like it really means all that much for us today. But as we said on Holy Saturday yesterday, and as we ended our Good Friday service, the beauty of what we know is that it changes the way we understand the now. We live in this in-between place of knowing something that will be true, and yet we live knowing that it's not fully experienced yet. We live our lives in such a way that we find ourselves wondering what can be? And so the beauty of it is that in the now, we have hope. But not just hope that like someday everything will be fine. What God intends and what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 15, if we would keep reading, he gets to a point where he's saying, listen, I'm talking about the end because God intends to invade your life now. To give you hope so that you experience life differently because the reality of it is, as we said yesterday on a holy Saturday, it's not that we do not grieve. We do not rush to Sunday in life or in the liturgical calendar. We do not want to get there just as fast as we can, though that is our predisposition and our proclivity. The reality of life is oftentimes we have to sit in grief. We have to sit in struggle. We have to wrestle 
with what might be. We have to acknowledge dashed dreams. We have to give up broken hopes. We have to allow the Lord to meet us in those spaces because we know He is a God that does so. That is, dis that is displayed in the cross. So it does have something for us today as we live our lives moment to moment. If it is true of culture and historical change, it is true of our lives. Resurrection will not have a moment where all of it just naturally changes. Eugene Peterson calls it a slow obedience in the same direction. A small change, bit by bit, as you find yourself in that grief and that turmoil, and you acknowledge and you say, but this is not the end, and you choose joy, you choose celebration. And we're entering into the Easter season where we will do just that. Easter is not just today in the church calendar. Easter is the next six weeks into this, seven Sundays, because we have to have one more Sunday of celebrating than you did of fasting. And this is why we have these moments as believers where we go back and forth because it is the practice of our lives to go back and forth from feasting to fasting and fasting to feasting because the reality of it is, is if you cannot fast, you are in, unable to feast as the way the Lord has called you to. If you cannot grieve, you are unable to celebrate. And if you cannot celebrate, you'll never be able to grieve the way God intends you to. And so collectively as a people, the last six weeks we have practiced grieving because for all that I said is true, that many of us are acquainted with death, many of us are acquainted with broken dreams and dashed hopes, for a lot of us in the room too, life has kind of gone the way we want it to. We live in a Western society where we can get what we want in less than 24 hours, or we say we want somebody else to send it to us. We live everything to just get to us as fast as we can. And oftentimes we're not acquainted with grief and we hide from it and we insulate ourselves from the realness and the roughness of life. And so we placed ourselves for six weeks as a community to say we know that it is from dust that we came and to dust we shall return. So that we can be practiced in the way of sitting with those that need to grieve. Sitting with those that need to be overcome with just your presence because it seems too dark to imagine anything else. We practice that. And now together as a church, what we are going to practice is joy. Kyle said it today is an entire day set apart from feast for feasting. Don't quote me on this, but I do have an MDiv. I don't think calories count today. <laughs> Enjoy the day. Find that ice cream. Open the bottle of wine. Whatever it is, allow this day to be a day that you mark differently, that you celebrate in a different kind of way because you are saying that we will celebrate even when we don't feel like it. And that is our challenge in the next six weeks. We're going to enter into a time of celebrating, and the reality of it is, is many of you will in a moment in a place where you go, I don't feel like celebrating. Do you not know how hard my life has been? I can't celebrate that for you. I can't step into that. My life's too dark. It's too difficult. And the Lord is inviting us and saying, no, you can do both. I'm big enough that you can hold the two in tension, that you can celebrate with those who need to celebrate, and we can grieve with those who can grieve. And we can do it simultaneously because God's that big and that beautiful, and he's inviting us into it, and that is the gift of the church. And so we will celebrate on the goodness and the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. And as the band comes back up, I'm going to conclude us in a slightly different way than uh, maybe 
you're used to. Uh, many of you know, and I, I, uh, I asked Grant Francis if I could share this and if I could tell you guys this, but if you don't know Grant Francis, he's been a member of our community for over a decade, and his father passed away this week. If you don't know the story of Grant's dad, his dad... Uh, 15 years ago, was involved in a tragic accident and was left paralyzed from the waist down and has spent the last 15 years battling all sorts of health issues and difficulties. In a uh, fateful theological twist, serendipitous moment, the funeral was yesterday on Holy Saturday. And Grant was asked to give the eulogy at his father's funeral. And this is how I want us to end, because he quotes a passage later in 1 Corinthians 15 that I think fits with what we're getting at today. So if you would just imagine that our brother Grant is reading this and not me, say a prayer for him and his family, but he says this, Holy Saturday in the liturgical calendar is a microcosm of the last 2,000 years as we hover between the already and the not yet of the kingdom of heaven. We sense that it wasn't supposed to be like this, and yet we believe that God is guiding human history, that he guides all the billions of individual lives that make up that history, and that he continues to guide our very own lives in some mysterious way. It's Saturday, and Jesus is in the tomb, but tomorrow is Easter. Easter is the reason that I have learned to doubt my doubts, the reason I have taken the same leap as generations before me into the faith of Jesus. And the reason that leap is not blind. Jesus of Nazareth died, but in so doing, he defeated death and came out the other side. He came back from that undiscovered country, not as some platonic disembodied spirit, but with a resurrected body that is somehow more real and physical than the world we find ourselves in. Not less. And he came back to give us his own resurrection life. Here and now, but just a foretaste of that divine glory that we will all experience fully when Christ returns, bringing heaven into a new creation. My father has died because of Jesus. I have hope in his resurrection. I have hope in a transformed body that can run and dance. And yet it's still recognizable as my dad in some mysterious way. As the Bible describes in 1 Corinthians 15, a chapter I read to my dad as he lay in the ICU, his earthly body finally failing him for good. But these fragile bodies, this fallen world, it is just a seed, a seed that must be planted and die. Because as Paul wrote, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies so will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, and it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, and it is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body and raised in its spiritual body. This is what we celebrate on Easter Sunday. This promise of hope and resurrection. It is what we have all in this space in some way, form, or another been drawn by, or you would not be in this room. We give ourselves to the hope 
of resurrection and the reality of what it is for us. So the band's going to play a song, and I invite you to come and to receive the elements. Come, take a piece of the bread. We have gluten-free bread over here if you need that. We also have small uh, germ-compliant cups if you still would like to take those. Come, receive the elements. Take the bread and the cup. Take it back to your seats and hold on to this resurrection life that is a foretaste here and now of what we will receive. Tear the bread, hold the cup, imagine what is being given to you. And as the band plays uh, and finishes the song, Kyle come up and or stay up here and lead us in the taking together as the people, as we receive and as we take of one body and one cup that is our hope in this life and in the life to come. So come in this moment, in this space, now, and receive in this moment the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen.